This is the Roger Stone Show on 77 WABC. A man who's gone through hell, but he's kept going and he's smart and he's strong and people love him. Not everybody, but people love him and respect him. Roger Stone. Now, here's Roger Stone. Welcome back. I am your genial host, Roger Stone, and this is The Roger Stone Show. Please take a minute to download the 77 WABC radio app to your cell phone because you don't want to miss any of the amazing programming here uh, at uh, 77 WABC. Uh, Curtis Sliwa, Larry Kudlow, uh, uh, Mayor Giuliani, uh, great programming. You don't want to miss any of it. Rita Cosby. Uh, Cats and Cosby. This, these are great shows, folks. So download the 77 WABC radio app to your phone and you won't miss any of it. Uh, my next guest is Kara Castronova. She is a fearless investigative journalist with the Gateway Pundit, uh, but she is also a Golden Gloves boxing champion uh, and the founder of Citizens Against Political Persecution. Uh, Cara is also active in the charitable area where she runs a nonprofit organization called Knockout Obesity Foundation, where she acts as the spokesman and current executive director. The charity helps young children lose weight by sending them to summer camps uh, and engages them in year-long weight loss programs. She is a two-times Golden Gloves winner and certified trainer who was once ranked nationally by the U.S. Boxing Association. Uh, let me just say, Kara Castronova is just as bright as she is beautiful, uh, and we are honored to have her here today on The Roger Stone Show. Thank you, Roger. It's an honor to be here talking to you today, and thank you for that introduction. Well, uh, I admire you because you are fearless in your investigative journalism for the Gateway Pundit. Uh, and uh, I know you were out on the streets recently interviewing everyday people in New York City. This is something you do quite a bit. Uh, and uh, I read in the Gateway Pundit that you went to the Bronx to do a report on Hispanic voters. Uh, and you found out some very surprising things uh, about people's reaction to Bidenomics and, uh, and what they have in mind for 2024. Tell us about it. Right. So I went out to the Bronx really just to talk to them about uh, Bidenomics, because I know that both President Trump and Biden are really trying to get the Hispanic vote in 2024. It's so important. So I went there just really to talk about the economy and literally left shocked because I did not expect them. I expected them to complain about the economy and to say how terrible Bidenomics is, but never did I expect every single person there that I spoke to, literally every single person saying that they were voting for Trump in 2024. And it was almost like they had Biden uh, derangements syndrome. Like Biden's name triggered people. Like people walking by on the street, if they would hear me say the word Biden, would start yelling and screaming, you know, profanities. <laughs> and, you know, everybody was just saying Trump 2024, Trump 2024. And, you know, I was I was completely shocked, which I think you could see on the video. If you go on my Twitter page, uh, you could see the full, full video of all of the people that I interviewed. And just people passing by saying Trump 2024 was almost surreal to see in the Bronx, New York, which is the bluest borough in Manhattan, by the way, the only one with the majority Spanish, uh, Hispanic, uh, Hispanic population and also um, voted 83% for Joe Biden in 2020. Uh, incredible to see, really. 
Yeah, it's very interesting if you looked at the New York Times uh, uh, Siena College poll, the Bloomberg Morning Consult poll, the NBC poll that where NBC pretended to be shocked, saying this was the first poll that showed Trump leading Biden when uh, you simply have to go to real clear politics for the daily polling average to see uh, that that's uh, not true. Uh, and uh, all of those polls showed very significant inroads by President Donald Trump uh, among African-American uh, and Hispanic voters. Uh, now, Trump received about 12 percent of the African-American vote uh, in uh, in 2020, uh, which is more than George W. Bush uh, uh, received in his reelection. Uh, you'd have to go all the way back to 1960 uh, when Richard Nixon running against uh, John Kennedy actually got almost a third of the African-American vote. More recently, polls have shown Trump getting about 22 percent of the African-American vote. I think he can build on that by talking about his record, the lowest level of unemployment among African-American and Hispanic voters uh, in our history, uh, his, uh, his criminal justice reform uh, in the First Step Act and the Second Chance Act, which is uh, landmark justice, things the Democrats have talked about for 30 years, uh, but many of them voted against it simply because Donald Trump uh, wanted to change uh, the fact that we have harsh mandatory penalties for the first time nonviolent crime of possession of small amounts of drugs for personal use. Uh, and it takes the decision process out of the hands of judges to take into consideration whether uh, the person charged is, let's say, a single mother with three kids uh, or, or what the situation. But where you have no prior criminal record, uh, the the results of the 1994 crime bill, as written by Senate Judiciary Chairman Joe Biden and signed into law by President Bill Clinton, has caused the mass incarceration uh, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, of African Americans, particularly young black men. Uh, there's no there's no uh, effort for rehabilitation. This is this is ruining lives. Uh, Trump did more about it than any president in our history. It's something I don't think he talked enough about in his reelection. Uh, it's something uh, that I hope uh, he talks about more uh, in this campaign. Uh, the economy is obviously a huge issue for voters uh, who are hovering around the poverty line, and they're feeling it hardest in certain areas in New York City. Uh, do you think this is what's driving uh, the people you spoke to in the Bronx uh, and others to move from Biden to Trump? Definitely. Uh, certainly, I think it's the economy. That's the main thing. I mean, obviously, people, uh, you know, when things hit home and affect them the most, for example, in the Bronx, um, I think that close to 30 percent of people there live below the poverty line. Actually, it's 27.9%. And the per capita income is $19,720, household income 36000 which is nothing when you're trying to survive in a city as expensive as New York. 
So people feel it the most in really poverty-stricken areas like the Bronx, certain areas of the Bronx, exactly where I went to interview people, and I think in other communities. So, you know, I think that um, really this year is going to be a big change. It's going to be different. The next place I plan on going is to Brooklyn and to some of the communities there, talking to some of the African-American voters and seeing what they're thinking. And I just have a feeling it's going to be the same thing. I think people are really over the whole Donald Trump is a racist, white supremacist. Um, One of the men that I spoke to said it's now about survival. They don't care about the policy. They don't care about the media and what they're saying. It's literally about survival. Like when you have to think between buying a loaf of bread and a carton of eggs when you're at the store and make that decision. You know, luckily that's not something. I'm very grateful, and I'm very grateful to God that, you know, I'm somewhere in the middle where I'm not struggling like that. There's so many people in this country that are, that are at the poverty level and really struggling. And I think those are the people that are going to actually ultimately put Donald Trump back in office in 2024. Uh, I want to remind folks that in just a few minutes, we're going to be taking your phone calls. That number is 800-848-9222. Once again, 800-848-9222. We're going to be taking your calls right here on The Roger Stone Show. We're talking to Kara Kostranova, uh, who is a reporter uh, with the Gateway Pundit. Uh, to what extent, Kara, do you think the lawfare waged against uh, President Trump uh, has backfired badly in these minority communities. They have a, a, a history of, uh, uh, of unequal justice. Uh, I think that there, that there is some sympathy for the president. To, to what extent do you think that, uh, that this street cred, if you will, uh, is playing uh, in this, uh, this fall off for Biden and this Trump resurgence? Well, I think that, you know, the DOJ and Biden, whatever, Biden's administration really uh, overplayed their hands when it comes to the Trump arrests and indictments, really backfired in many communities, including the one that I went into and uh, other low-income communities. Like you said, they uh, have had not good experiences with the law, so it does give Trump a lot of street cred. And people would just start, like, I didn't even have to, it wasn't provoked in any way. You know, I'd be talking to people on the street saying, what do you think about President Trump? And they would start saying stuff like, free my son Trump or free Trump, free Trump. I really think like it, it backfired. And it, Trump is really endeared to these communities now. They really look at him like the underdog. I think it's kind of the way that we all looked at him in 2016 when uh, you know the minority communities were being told he was a racist and a white supremacist. Uh, a lot of these people are really just very busy and they're really working to survive. Didn't really at the time have, I think, enough uh, time to do the research and realize that that was all media lies. But now it's come full circle. You know, we're going on almost close to eight years after the fact of 2016 and that election. And I think people are really realizing what we realized back then, that Trump is the underdog, that the elitists don't want him in office. Um, and he's, you know, the people's president. And a lot of people said, you know, Donald Trump was, was for the people. He made sure that we had what we needed. He, he was doing more for us. Uh, he, he was making sure that poor people had enough. And these were the, the things that were, people were saying to me on the street. And really, I think that the arrest of Trump has really given him incredible street cred. I mean, it was completely unanimous in the Bronx that everybody's voting for Trump, and free Trump, free Trump was something that I kept hearing. Uh, Now, Cara, I don't want to give away a secret, but um, it was big news this week when uh, Congressman George Santos uh, resigned, or I should say was expelled from the House. He didn't resign. He was expelled. Uh, While I'm not defending uh, him, uh, he's still innocent until proven guilty, uh, I would have preferred that the House do as they did in the case, say, of Adam Clayton Powell, uh, waited until he was convicted before expelling him. 
Uh, but at this point, he is merely accused. Uh, I find it outrageous uh, that Eric Swalwell, a congressman from California, can have a dalliance uh, with a Chinese communist spy uh, while he's a member of the House Intelligence Committee uh, and uh, he is, uh, uh, has full access to national security and classified documents. Uh, the, the woman spy went by the name Fang Fang, died mysteriously in a plane crash. Uh, actually inserted an employee in the congressman's office, uh, an intern, uh, yet he was not expelled from the Congress, uh, nor uh, under uh, uh, Speaker McCarthy uh, were there any restrictions on his committee assignments, yet uh, we, we expelled George Santos before he has been convicted. Now, if he is convicted, which I, you know, the government wins most of his cases, then perhaps he should, be, should have been expelled. But that said, he's gone. Uh, the Republican Party leaders in the third district uh, are interviewing potential candidates. You ran for the assembly in a district which overlaps in the third district. Uh, and a little bird told me that you were among those uh, who were interviewed. Now, uh, people don't know your ethnicity, uh, but you are half a Chinese, uh, half uh, uh, Hispanic. Uh, I believe. Uh, half Italian, actually, ha but everyone a, thinks I'm Hispanic. Okay, half Italian, so you're one of God's chosen people. Uh, this, uh, this means to me, and I know how articulate you are, and I know what a hard worker and a fierce fighter you are, you would be a tremendous candidate. Uh, wh what is the status of this? Well, I definitely threw my name into the ring, you know, for lack of a better analogy. And, and you know, it's up to the really the party out in Long Island who... We had some really big wins over the past four years, so I really trust the party when it comes to it. There's a lot of people that have been uh, vying for that Santos seat, and because it's such a winnable district, and because we have such a slim majority in the House. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely would love to get the opportunity to represent the district, but um, ultimately, in, in especially in a, an election like this, which is going to come to a special election probably in February, the party picks the candidate. So there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of great candidates, and I mean great because I literally live over here, so I know a lot of them personally um that that are have uh been interviewed and that are you know thinking about running so i think they're going to make that announcement very soon well good luck to you uh, if the republican party sachems are smart uh, you will be their candidate you would really really be excellent thank you uh, some of your most impressive investigative journalism has centered around the events of january 6th so i guess my question to you is what is your reaction uh, to the decision by Speaker Mike Johnson to release uh, the video from government cameras uh, of the events of January 6th? Uh, we haven't seen all of that yet. To me, that's a little disappointing. Uh, and I, and I, I, I note that with some trepidation. But to me, what we have seen so far uh, is pretty incredible uh, in terms of demonstrating uh, the government's secret role uh, in fomenting the violence that day. Uh, what's your reaction to the video you have seen so far? Well, I, I mean, I'm, so, I'm very happy that he released that video, that Speaker of the House did that uh, before McCarthy didn't do it, and that was a promise he had made. And, um, you know, a lot of people don't realize that what was released and what's being released is 
footage from the CT cameras, really no audio is on these, uh, is in this footage. A lot of the video that I've seen and the most damning video against the government and against the police that day is the body camera footage, the full body camera footage that was worn by the Metropolitan Police that day. So that video footage is not being released. What's being released is the, the video footage that was taken from the cameras on the walls and outside the building of the Capitol. So um, that's very useful footage, and it really gives a, a viewpoint and a bird's eye picture, I guess, of, of what really happened that day. But if you really want to go in for detail and hear the audio and hear the things that were being said, the next thing that we have to push to get out there is the body cam footage, which incredibly has not been released. The body cam footage is supposed to be owned by the people. Everybody knows that cops wear body cameras for a reason, and that is to hold them accountable. So, um, you know, it's insane to me that three years later, a lot of this body camera footage hasn't been released, where you literally hear police officers, sadly, very sadly, uh, you know, kind of provoking violence and not saying it in a nice way. So hopefully that body camera footage will be released soon. And I'm very, uh, like I said, the speaker will be more friendly. I hope in the next year there's a second January 6th committee. While we still have the House, hopefully we'll still have it in 2024. I think we will. But uh, why take the risk? I think that in 2023 that the, the House needs to have a second committee investigating January 6th, investigating the trials of the prisoners for January 6th, and uh, investigating how they've been stripped of due process. And if we don't do it this year, I don't know if it'll ever get done. So hopefully this speaker will be more uh, helpful. I went down to Congress, Roger, actually myself a month ago or two, about a month and a half ago to petition to members of Congress. This was right before this speaker got um, got the gavel. And I, a lot of the people there were telling me, it's not going to happen with McCarthy. It's just not going to happen. He doesn't want to do anything with January 6th. He wants to sweep it under the rug. That's what I was told by a lot of people in the congressional building, and that hopefully a new speaker would be more open to it. So for the next new year, I hope that that is my uh, wish for the new year and what I'm asking Santa for, because we're going on three years uh, now, January 6th. People are still being arrested, literally just got arrested. Someone I know personally just got arrested last week. So it's been three years. People are still getting arrested, and they're going to keep doing this, um, you know, obviously to influence the 2024 election. So the best way that the House, if they're smart, the Republicans can influence this election is showing the truth to the country about January 6th and how, like you said, a lot of the violence was provoked by the police that day, very sadly, and that uh, there were people killed uh, there that nobody knows about and no police officers were not killed like everybody thinks. Uh, look, I have a personal interest in I hope uh, that the Speaker Johnson appoints a new committee uh, to study what the January 6th Select Committee did. Cassidy Hutchinson, former aide to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, testified uh, in uh, open televised hearings uh, that President Trump instructed his White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to call Roger Stone and General Michael Flynn on the evening or afternoon of the 5th to find out how the next day's events would unfold. Those are the words of Liz Cheney. Cassidy yeah, no, Hutchinson. I mean, everybody knows Cassidy Hutchinson was a hearsay witness and really a very sad joke. Uh, I don't want to say that about another female, but it's the truth. And, um, you know, if there was a real January 6th committee, obviously we would expose stuff like that. And, you know, there's real witnesses out there that, that are not hearsay witnesses and that are not being, you know, influenced by the Democrat Party to be part partisan witnesses so um i hopefully i'm hoping for you and everybody else that's name got smeared that's name was smeared and slandered uh you know in front of the whole nation that there's justice and that there's an, another committee hearing well the, the point of this of course is that there never was any such call, phone call i've never spoke to right. mark meadows uh, either did general flynn cassidy hutchison goes on to say uh under uh, very carefully structured words 
that uh, that Meadows, the White House chief of staff, was supposed to attend a meeting in a war room uh, in the Willard Hotel, but that she essentially persuaded him not to go. And he later checked in with Stone and Flynn for a download. That's a second act of perjury. The Washington Post has established through four different sources uh, that I was never in any war room. I know nothing about any war room in the Willard Hotel. Uh, Now, Cassidy Hutchison, as we learned on Friday, has gone back, and this is very unusual, she's revised her sworn testimony in a 15-page memo, which is a, and she, these are not grammatical uh, or punctuation corrections. She's changed materially uh, her testimony to try to avoid a perjury charge. So I really hope that the speaker uh, will do the right thing uh, and appoint uh, a committee Uh, to take a look at what happened to the January 6th committee. This committee destroyed all of uh, its records, pardon me, at least 50% of its records, even though the law and the rules require them to keep those records. What are they hiding? The the videoed uh, uh, depositions of multiple witnesses uh, have been destroyed. So uh, I am I'm really hoping uh, that we will get justice uh, and and the truth. Uh, now, I know you have been working on a new documentary uh, with Laura Logan uh, about uh, Roseanne Boyland and her death. Uh, tell us uh, quickly, uh, who was Roseanne Boyland? Uh, why is her story important? And how was it when you went to her hometown? Well, for people don't, who don't know who Roseanne Boylan is, which is a lot of people, including Republicans, she's the second woman that was killed on January 6th. Nobody knows that a second woman was killed. And I uncovered the video footage along with a, a reporter named Gary McBride showing Roseanne being beaten right before she died by a policewoman that day. And then she died. And the news reported she died of a drug overdose, which turned out to be absolutely not true. And nobody ever heard her name again. So it's a big cover-up with the government when they covered up her death and, and announced to the media the fake news that she died of a drug overdose. And she's literally been neglected by the news and by everybody really except for uh, institutions like the Gateway Planet and like you Roger who has spoken about her so we, we did a documentary Lara Logan is doing a documentary series on January 6th and it's amazing uh, work it was an honor to get to work with her and to get to see her in action we went down to Roseanne's uh, Roseanne Boylan's hometown in Georgia Kennesaw Georgia we spoke to her family we spoke to her dear friends we spoke to a witness that was there that day the gentleman that went down there with her um, and he went on the record and said you know she was alive when she was beaten by that policewoman because a lot of the questions I had was was she alive or was she dead when she was beaten by police officer Lila Morris uh, that day and he said she was alive and that she suffered which was very sad and very heartbreaking to hear but all the more reason for questions like why wasn't Roseanne Boylan ever mentioned by the January 6th committee at all Ashley Babbitt wasn't even mentioned or the other two Trump supporters that died that day but why have they ignored the death of Roseanne Boylan and went on to lie and say that commit perjury and imply that police officers, multiple police officers had died that day, which just isn't true. So it was a really great opportunity for me to go meet her family, to go meet her friends, to see where she grew up, and to really do justice to her life story. And, you know, she, if you Google Roseanne Boylan's name, it'll come up as QAnon supporter uh, who died of a drug overdose on the Capitol steps, trampled by Trump supporters, which is the opposite of the truth. She was a beautiful woman. She was a recovered drug addict, hadn't done drugs in seven, seven years, and she was there and she got, uh, you know, 
crushed by a crowd that uh, police pushed on top of her, then beaten by police officer Lila Morris and died on the steps that day and was swept under the rug by the government and the mainstream media. So hopefully her story will come to light and a real January 6th uh, committee will come forward and say, how did this happen? How did, you know, a protester die that day? How can we make sure this doesn't happen again? Something the first January 6th committee should have done besides slandering the names of obviously Donald Trump and, and Roger Stone and others. So I'm curious uh, to get off politics for a moment uh, of the uh, extraordinary career you had as a boxer. You first entered the boxing arena as a youth boxer, uh, and uh, you won your first fight in 2002 in the New York Empire State Games in Syracuse. Uh, you boxed regularly at Chelsea Piers at Gleason's Boxing Gym, uh, and uh, you kept boxing competitively, winning a pair of silver gloves in 2004, the second place prize in the Golden Gloves competition. Uh, you went on to uh, actually box in Madison Square Garden in 2005 uh, in the Golden Gloves Championship. Uh, you're, uh, following your Golden Gloves win, you started competing nationally. You were once actually ranked number two in the nation uh, by USA Boxing. Uh, what does it take uh, to becoming a, a, a professional boxing champion. I mean, it took, it was blood, sweat, and tears. Like, uh, you know, like I think, it, thank God I had that experience early on because I really draw back from that experience now with the, the work that I'm doing now and, you know, the fear factor that comes in and just fighting fear and fighting past fear. But it comes a lot of training mentally and physically, more mentally, believe it or not, than physically because there's nothing scarier than getting in a ring in front of a capacity crowd and, uh, you know, standing in front of somebody that's goal is to knock you out and to hurt you. So um, I think that it helped me become somewhat fearless and also somebody that uh, that keeps fighting no matter what you know of course i i had lost i had experienced loss in my career but i had a uh, the fortitude to keep fighting and, and keep trying to win so it was a tremendous amount of work and i feel like helped me build incredible character in my uh, you know early 20s and the times that i was being really competitive as a boxer to really draw back on later in life um, but it was a great experience, and I, I miss it all the time. You know, I currently do some commentating for boxing and MMA just to stay in the world because it's, it's such a great world to step away from politics, like you said, and, you know, just step into the world of boxing and fighting. It's actually much more peaceful, if you could imagine, than the world of politics. Well, uh, obviously this is radio, so you can't see Cara Castronova, but uh, she is uh, stunningly beautiful. On the other hand, she's obviously tough as nails as well. Uh, an extraordinary investigative journalist with the Gateway Pundit, and who knows, perhaps, perhaps uh, a candidate for Congress. Uh, I really think the, the party leaders would be very wise. Tell, you ran for the Assembly in an overwhelmingly Democratic district. we got about two minutes left here. Tell us what that was like. I mean, it was it was a great experience. I got to run in my hometown, uh, so I know everybody here. So it was really uh, surreal to be able to run and try to represent this area. I broke records here as a Republican. This is overwhelmingly Democrat area. I think close to seventy percent Democrat, if not more. And um, you know, I won close to forty between forty three and forty four percent of the vote, which was never done before by a Republican. Usually, it's I believe in the the thirties, the low thirties at most. 
So getting to go around and talk to different um, groups in my community, uh, where I live, Elmont and Valley Stream, which is in the district, is one of the most diverse areas you can imagine in New York or even, I believe, in, in the country, really. That's a suburban area. So just getting to talk to different minority groups and understand what they're looking for, um, what they want from a political leader, I think really uh, was helpful and was very useful to me as a journalist and a writer and hopefully a future politician. So, um, you know, I, I had a great time. I had a great time getting to know the Republican Party out here in Long Island and just the opportunity to spread the, you know, the conservative message to Democrats here and independents and show them that there's different faces than the, the one that they think of when they think Republican. You know, I'm a female. I'm a minority. I, I'm from this area. So a lot of people went out and voted for me, and they actually, um, you know, I think – for the first time voted Republican. A lot of people told me after the election, you're the first Republican I ever voted for. I hope they, even before they called the election, people were saying, please don't disappoint me. You're going to be the first Republican I'm going to vote for. Please do us just, please do it justice. And I promised that I would. So that experience was great. And um, I think I really proved myself to the party out here that I, I can win and that I could raise money and that people would believe in me and I can make bridges to different minority groups like the Muslim community, like the Hispanic community, like the African-American community that's out here, as well as uh, keep the votes of like the, you know, the, the traditional Republicans that vote out here in Nassau County. All right. We are out of time. Let me thank Kara uh, Castronova for joining us here on the Roger Stone Show. Folks, we're going to be taking your phone calls in the next segment. That number again, 800 848 I'm Roger Stone. This is the Roger Stone Show, and we right back. This is the Roger Stone